Well, good morning, Covenant. Good to be with you. Let us hear from the Lord as He graciously condescends to speak to us from His Word, in particular, the Gospel of Mark, verses 35 through 44. You can follow along in your program with me. And as Jesus taught in the temple, He said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two copper coins, which makes a penny. And he calls disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is God's Word, given for our benefit. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we commit this time to you, and we simply ask that you would, well, simply but profoundly ask that you would open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see, open our hearts to receive what you have so graciously spoken to us. And Lord, I pray that as a result of our time, we would come to see Jesus more clearly, and as a result, love him more passionately and follow him more faithfully. Lord, this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a simple proverb. A shoe factory sends two marketing scouts to a region of Africa to study the prospects of expanding business. One sends back a telegram saying, Situation hopeless. Stop. No one wears shoes. The other writes back triumphantly, Glorious business opportunity. Stop. They have no shoes. So begins his book, The Art of Possibility, written by Ben Zander, an English conductor who is the music director at the Boston Philharmonic Symphony and is also a guru in speaking to folks about getting rid of paradigms which limit their ability to succeed. And he goes on in this chapter, he says, To the marketing experts who see no shoes, all the evidence points to hopelessness. To his colleague, the same conditions point to abundance and possibility. Each scout comes to the scene with his own perspective. Each returns, telling a different tale. Indeed, all of life comes to us in narrative form. It's a story we tell. The roots of this phenomenon go much deeper than just attitude or personality. Experiments in neuroscience have demonstrated that we reach an understanding of the world in roughly this sequence. First, our senses bring us selective information about what is out there. Second, the brain constructs its own simulation 
of the sensations. And only then, third, do we have our first conscious experience of our milieu. Milieu. I love that word. I can't pronounce it, but I love it. Milieu. The world comes into our consciousness in the form of a map. Here's the key. Already drawn. A story already told. A hypothesis, a construction of our own making. He goes on to quote Einstein, who told his colleague Heisenberg, that it is nonsense to found a theory on observable facts alone. In reality, the opposite happens. It is theory which decides what we can observe. It is theory which decides what we can observe. The first chapter of this book, The Art of Possibility, is a wake-up call to the fact that our paradigms limit us, limit the way we view our world, ourselves, and our lives. And in the end of the chapter, Xander challenges us to ask this question, what assumption am I making that I'm not aware that I'm making that gives me what I see. Now, I think there's a logical problem in that, in the sense if you're not aware of it, how can... Anyway, but we're not... Just take it at face value. I think it's a, a decent thing to think about. But hold that for a second. Because in this Lenten season, we're looking at events that occurred the last week of Jesus' earthly life, from the triumphal entry to his death on the cross. And these are often referred to as the Jerusalem conflict narratives because they are fraught with confrontation. You see, from his entrance into Jerusalem, where he begins by cleansing the temple, Jesus sets off this firestorm of opposition. Specifically, Jesus is immediately challenged by every sect of the Jewish religious and political power structure, from the Sadducees and the Herodians, the liberal elite on the left, to the Pharisees and the scribes, the moral conservatives, On the right, people who normally would have nothing to do with each other, who were normally bitter rivals, actually, they came together because of their common bond in this, their common hatred and rejection of Jesus. And throughout the week, they come to him, and they come at him with questions about politics and law and religion, all with the intent of discrediting this rabbi particularly in the eyes of the Roman authorities, who, of course, had the power to destroy him, but just as importantly, in the eyes of the people themselves, all to the end that they could put away this rabble-rouser, put an end to this disruptor of the social and religious power structure. But here's the thing. I love what Pastor Aaron said last week. None of this surprises Jesus. None of this threatens Jesus. Most, I love this most of all, what Pastor Aaron said last week. Jesus walked around the place like he owned it. Amidst all the conflict, he walked around Jerusalem like he owned it. Jesus walks around as a person who was totally free. And what we see is that every time the religious and political leaders approach him, Jesus blows them away. His answers surprise and amaze and most importantly confound them. And at every turn, he turns their questions into an opportunity to show that he doesn't fit any preconceived mold and that he and his gospel is an entirely, are an entirely different way, a different way to view religion and power and life as a whole. And today I'm going to look at 
In a sense, you could say Jesus on the offensive, where he attempts one last time to get the religious leaders and the people of Israel, and by extension, you and me, to see who he really is and why that matters. You see, all through this chapter, Jesus has been, in a sense, not really, but in a sense, on the defensive, in the sense that he has been on the receiving end of the questions. But now the questions have stopped. Jesus has so thwarted the religious leaders, so confounded them, that in verse 34, the verse right before the section that I just read, it says this, and from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. They were done. They were beaten. They had given up. And now you might think that might be the end of it. But no. Jesus now takes one opportunity, one more opportunity to turn the tables and go on the offensive, and he asks his own question. So let me read again, verses 34, 35 through 37 of our passage. And it says, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, and now he's going to quote Psalm 110 that was read for us. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. And again, the question comes. David asks, David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And again, Jesus here is quoting for Psalm 110, and he's making an argument. And it's an argument, let's, I'll just be honest, it may be hard for us to understand and appreciate because it was certainly an argument tailored for Jesus' times. Not necessarily our times, but his times. But I still think there's a lot we can learn and gain from it. So let's walk through and see what this argument is all about. You know, first Jesus starts with a couple of premises that everyone, everyone agreed upon and understood at that time. And the first is this, that all the Hebrew prophets predicted a Messiah that was coming to put everything right in Israel. There was a Messiah coming. And then second, all the prophets said that he would be a descendant of David. The Messiah would be in the line of David, a descendant of David. And therefore, in the parlance of that time and the wording of that time, would be David's son, if it, as it were. And Jesus says, if this is the case, how then do you explain Psalm 110? Because in Psalm 110, which is a psalm of David, he wrote about this great figure who God would send to put down all enemies, all enemies of justice, all enemies of evil, all enemies of God. And it was very clear to everyone at Jesus' time that David was referring to the Messiah in his psalm. But then, if that's the case, here's the rub. Because in the psalm, King David, speaking by the Holy Spirit, speaking prophetically, says... The Lord says to my Lord, my Lord. That's the key. David calls this messianic figure, my Lord. And the question that Jesus asks is why would that be? If David was foreseeing one of his descendants, he would never call him my Lord. He would call him my son. So Jesus brings it to a head. He says, why can he be David's Lord? Why the, how can he be David's Lord and also David's son? If he calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And there was meant to be only one answer. 
The only answer is that the Messiah can only be David's son if he's also God's son. He can only be David's son if he's also God's son. Jesus is saying, therefore, to the people he's talking to, particularly to the religious leaders, you have a view of the Messiah who's just human. You believe in a human figure that's going to bring about a human liberation in Israel. But how do you explain this? If that's the case, the biblical language, it makes no sense. It makes no sense unless you realize that this will not just be a human figure, but a divine figure. This will not just be David's son, but also God's son. Come into David's line, who comes not just to put down the political enemies of God and of Israel, but the ultimate enemies of the whole human race, to put down sin, to destroy death, to destroy evil for the sake of the whole world. In other words, Jesus is saying, the Messiah has come. The Messiah has to be more than you are expecting. In a sense, you could say Jesus was Einstein before Einstein. That, remember that quote, it's theory which decides what you can observe. Jesus is saying to the people who are listening, particularly the religious leaders, you have filters over your minds. You have human paradigms of what the Messiah is supposed to be like, and it's affecting what you see. But if you let it, the Bible in places like Psalm 110 can blow all those filters away. Jesus is trying to wake up the religious leaders and everyone in front of him to the fact that their paradigms are limiting their ability to view their lives, their world, and most importantly, the person and the salvation that stood before them. Specifically, it's limiting the ability to see that only Jesus can be the Messiah the Bible actually shows us. Only he could and did fulfill all the Bible says about this one, this divine one who David calls my Lord. This is in a sense, Jesus, who do you say I am moment in Jerusalem? Remember earlier in Mark, in what scholars refer to as the really the transition point of the gospel. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, who do people say that I am? And they give him a bunch of answers. But then most importantly, he turns to them. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, Peter of all people, and probably the first thing he gets right in his whole life, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he's right. Peter gets it. David's son was also God's son. And what Jesus is saying to the religious leaders is this, are you willing to even consider that the Messiah might be different, maybe more than you ever considered, that he might not fall neatly into your categories, that he might not be easily explainable, that he might have more authority, more power, that he might have a bigger agenda and plan and goal than anything you might have imagined or could have imagined. Are you willing to consider that this one who will be David's son might also be God's son? And folks, we need to see how important this is. It certainly was to the early church. Do you know that Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in all of the New Testament? And there's a reason why. It's because of this very thing. Every time it's quoted... The New Testament writers, like Peter, as he's giving that sermon on Pentecost, 
And he quotes from Psalm 110. He's celebrating. And what is he celebrating? It's, he's celebrating that Jesus is the transcendent one. He is the Messiah. He's celebrating that he's the one who's come from God and who sits now at God's honored and authoritative right hand. The New Testament writers, in quoting this, are celebrating that Jesus is the one who has all authority, all power, all dominion, because they knew that makes all the difference. Because this explains why Jesus could walk around Jerusalem like he owned it. This could explain why Jesus was absolutely free. Because he was not just David's son. He was God's son. And here's what that means for us. And let me put it just in one way, very simply. Let's admit it. Let's just admit it. We have filters in our own lives that limit our ability to see Jesus clearly. The religious leaders couldn't see beyond their own expectations, their own desires, their own their needs for the resolution of certain problems. They couldn't see beyond them to see the possibility of something bigger, something grander. And unfortunately, they adopted a theory of God where he was the one being controlled instead of being the one who is in control. And here's the thing. Too often, we do the same thing. We have this preconceived view of who God is or what God is like. As one of my favorite pastors says, we have a cardboard cutout view of God where we envision a God who thinks like we do affirms what we do, values what we do, seeks to meet the needs we care about, and therefore who never pushes back, never challenges, in essence, a God who is controlled but not in control of our lives. But what happens if God is actually different than our preconceived ideas? What happens when God has a different agenda? Different values, different plans, different goals. What happens when God starts making demands? Starts laying claim to my life, my resources, my time, my talents, my treasure. What happens then? What happens instead of being controlled, God starts to exert control. Many people say, I don't believe in a God like that. I don't want anything to do with a God like that. But that is of us, and I dare say I'm talking to most of us in this room, find ourselves at times confused and frustrated because we don't understand what's going on, what God is up to, because it doesn't fit our paradigm. And so we get angry. We get angry because God isn't doing what we think he's supposed to do, what he should do. Or we rebel. Or we just give up, or we, tempt, or we are tempted to do so. In essence, we just stop being willing to trust. But can I suggest two things in those moments? The first is this. Go back to that question that Ben Zander asked. Think about what assumptions am I making? Am I making assumptions that I'm not aware of but are being revealed to me now that are causing me to see things the way I see them? And then second, go to Scripture and look at what Jesus is really like. And what you'll find is yes. Yes, Jesus the one who's in control, who sits at the right hand of the Father with all power and dominion and authority. But you also find when it comes to what Jesus is like, particularly when it pertains to his power and control and authority, you will find 
that you can trust him. Why? Look at the next two sections in our passage. Look at what Jesus condemns and what he commends. Who does he condemn? He condemns the scribes. Why? Because they use their power to parade around like rock stars who demand that people stand in their presence, they literally did, who expect the best seats at the table and who use their authority most heinously to prey on the weak and the poor for their own end, their own benefit. And Jesus condemns them in the strongest possible terms. And folks, I can say without any condition, Jesus is never like the scribes. How do we know? Look who he condemns. Look who he commends, excuse me. The next section, Jesus is sitting with his disciples opposite, opposite the treasury, and he sees all these rich people come, and out of their abundance, put money in the offering box, if you will. And then he sees a poor widow come and put in two small copper coins, not even worth a penny in our money. And then he calls the disciples to him, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put everything she had, all she had to live on. And really, that's not even strong enough. More literally, it says, she put in everything, even her whole life. Or you could translate it, she lay down her whole life. And here's what's so amazing, folks. As great as her act was of sacrifice, and it was great, the widow is only figuratively giving her life away. But when David's Lord became David's son, he literally gave his life away to the point of death on the cross. And on the cross, the one who deserved justice received condemnation so that you and I who deserve condemnation might receive God's unmerited favor. You see, only Christianity of all the religions of the world has the audacity to say to just like the widow, God willingly became poor and weak to the point where he was imprisoned, abused, stripped naked, and hung on a cross. He lost it all. He gave it all away. Why? so that you and I might be like him, so that you and I might be free. Can we not trust a God like that? Can we not trust a God who has all power and authority, dominion, and yet cares to give himself for us? Can we not trust even when he appears different than what we expect? When he pushes back, when he challenges us, he's doing it for our good. Don't let your thoughts about who Jesus should be, needs to be, what a Savior must do in your life blind you to who he really is and what he really can do in and through your life. Jesus will never be less than we expect, but most certainly and always he will be different and more than we expect. And that's why Jesus says to the religious leaders and to you and to me, look at the scriptures and put away what you think I should be like, what you have been told I am like, what you wish I was like, and see me for who I really am. And if you look at me in scripture, 
for who I really am. You will not be able to explain me in any other way than to say he is not just David's son, but he is God's son who has come to always act for our good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that that's true, that the one who has authority and power and dominion, who sits at your right hand, our Lord and Savior, our elder brother, has sent his Holy Spirit and works now in our lives. Why? For our good. And Lord, we thank you that you are so gracious to us. And I pray that you would just remind us of your great power, but of your great goodness. And I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.